Welcome everyone to episode 3 of the Modern Vintage Podcast and I am your host Modern Vintage Gamer. Now I guess it's a bit of a running joke or a meme that I'm going to announce a guest on the show this month but unfortunately I don't have a guest for this month but hey I will probably have someone lined up for next month but we'll we'll, we'll see what what happens there not for any other reason that um, you know there's been a lot of things going on at the start of this year and it's really hard to to lock down people that I want on the show I've got some really good people that have committed to coming on the show but unfortunately we're just going to have to wait a little bit longer I do this podcast once a month and it really complements my YouTube channel and I talk about the latest going ons in the retro and modding community and this particular month we have a lot of topics to discuss and I think it will be very interesting. So without any further ado, let's jump right in. Now the first thing that I want to talk about is this ugly rumor about Scalebound coming out for the Nintendo Switch. Now if I go back and look at my timeline and I'm just looking it up now that there was an announcement or there was a rumor announcement i should say that scalebound was reported to come out on the nintendo switch and actually the rumor was in february so i do apologize that i didn't discuss it in the february edition of the show but there was a lot of media outlets picked up on this rumor that scalebound could return as a switch exclusive and, you know, Games Radar, Shack News, Game Rant, IGN, VG247, Tech Radar, WCCF Tech, all the big kind of websites reported on this. Nintendo Life as well, Nintendo Inside. I'm just looking through Google right now. Even Metro.co.uk, um, big threads on Reddit. Obviously, a lot of YouTubers picked up on this as well and made their own kind of posts on it. But here's the thing, guys. Here's the thing. We've got to remember, Microsoft still owns the IP to Scalebound. But even that aside, right, let's let's assume that Microsoft gave away or released the IP to Scalebound to the highest bidder and, you know, Nintendo picked up on the, on the IP or on the license or whatever. I don't know much about intellectual property law, so you have to forgive me there. But let's assume that Nintendo or, you know, Platinum or whoever did pick up the rights to Scalebound after Microsoft relinquished their hold on it, which even that seems very odd to me. But let's let's assume that's what's happened. What I want to say is you got to go back and remember the reason why Scalebound was cancelled by Microsoft Studios. Now, Microsoft cancelled Scalebound back in January of 2017. So it's been, you know, almost two and a half years since Scalebound was was cancelled by Microsoft Studios. And, you know, they, they kind of came out and said that it was a hard decision, but hey, we've got an amazing lineup of games coming out, including Crackdown 3, State of Decay 2, Sea of Thieves, and all three of those games, you can obviously say, were very underwhelming. Now, remember that when this went down, Microsoft and Platinum parted ways, and Platinum had stopped working on the project, and they weren't going to work on any other Microsoft Xbox exclusive games. And I don't believe they have to this date. But one of the quotes that Microsoft came out with and said for the cancellation of Scalebound was, with continuing issues surrounding the game's engine and overdue deadlines, the decision was made that the project could no longer continue. 
So now, if we think about this for a second, how the hell do you really believe that this game would come to the Nintendo Switch unless it was in name only? I can't see any way that Scalebound that struggled to perform on an Xbox One S would work on a Nintendo Switch. I mean, if you think about performance, the Nintendo Switch is quite inferior as far as performance to the original Xbox One or the Xbox One S. So I don't see any way for this game to ever run on the Nintendo Switch unless the actual game itself is completely changed to work in more of a hybrid portable slash you know, dock mode style game. But this was a four-player co-op action game, and it was one of those games that really just had a very, very difficult development timeline. And I just can't see this game coming out for the Nintendo Switch. Even if the rumors, you know, um, are very strong, look, I'm calling it right now, guys. I'm going to put my hand up and say there is no way that we will ever see Scalebound on the Nintendo Switch or any other system. But more importantly, the Nintendo Switch, it's got a better it's got a better chance of ending up on the Sony PlayStation 4 or whatever comes next after the or after the PlayStation 4 I should say. This game is not coming out for the Switch. You know, the IP issues that we mentioned and the fact that this game was an absolute dog's breakfast as far as performance on an original Xbox 1 or the Xbox 1X. I can't see this running on the Switch hardware in any shape or fashion. I just don't think the Switch is powerful enough to run a game like this. And unless this is something that may be touted for the next iteration of the Switch, which we keep hearing about how there is kind of updates to the Switch that potentially could be coming that run at, you know, bigger clock speeds and have more memory and runs faster with a faster GPU performance... I can't see this game coming out on the Switch at all. I just don't think that it's even feasible that it would ever run on a Switch. And that seems to be one of the areas where these kind of news websites and, you know, other YouTubers have kind of forgotten. A lot of people are just kind of overlooking that fact that there's no way I can see this game running very well at all from a performance standpoint. And I just don't think it's something that makes sense on the Nintendo Switch because I feel like if there was development hell that went on you know, developing this game to make it run very well on the Xbox One, then they're in for a rude awakening if they think that they can get this game to run on a Nintendo Switch. I mean, take it from me as someone who has dabbled with the Nintendo Switch, albeit from a homebrew perspective... I find it very difficult to believe that we will see Scalebound running on the Nintendo Switch in any shape or form, at least this iteration of the Nintendo Switch. Now, I don't know what it's going to happen with a potential, you know, hardware revision of the Switch, but, you know, if we're talking about the Nintendo Switch that we all have in our hands and that we all use today, there's no way Scalebound is coming out for any other system. I think this game is dead in the water, and I don't think the rumors are real. I think it's a load of bullshit, and I don't think that we will see Scalebound on, on the Nintendo Switch and also not on any other system. So I wanted to talk about the Analog Mega SG reviews because uh, I released a video of the Analog Mega SG a few weeks ago and it's a great product, and I think people really like the review. 
I got some good feedback from the review that mine was one of the better reviews that was released, which is always good to hear. I know that the Retro Roundtable guys were reviewing all the analog Mega SG reviews and they really liked mine. So I like the feedback and it really just reinforces that I'm doing things right. Well, I think I am and people are happy with what I'm doing. So that's cool. And one thing that I do want to mention, however, is this whole thing about review embargoes. A lot of comments that I got in the video, people were really confused about why my video came out at exactly the same time as Metal Jesus's video and John Hancock's and My Life in Gaming and This Does Not Compute and everyone else. And people were genuinely confused about this. And there were other people that were saying that this was collusion and it was also, you know, we were all kind of banding around together to come out with reviews at the same time and all this kind of conspiracy theory, black helicopter stuff. But in reality, a review embargo was something that was in place with this particular review. Now, review embargoes are very, very common in other areas of the industry. So for example, video game reviews, you will note that when a particular AAA game is released, more often than not, there will be a review embargo. So you'll notice that IGN and GameSpot and all these other um, you know, publications, Kotaku, Polygon, will all release reviews at the same time. That's because the review embargo has lifted and those particular outlets can release their reviews. Now, this is quite common in many other areas of the industry and other industries. So it makes me really question why people felt like there was collusion and all these kind of, you know, things going on with this review. And I really don't blame anyone for for thinking that it was collusion or anything like that. I guess it's just, you know, the retro community has a bit of catching up to do as far as education is concerned, because you know, embargoes are part and parcel of any, pretty much any other industry out there. But for some reason, the retro gaming community, it's, it's not really understood very well. So I think, you know, there is some education that is needed there. And and I do think, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, that more embargo type reviews will be, you know, will, will appear for the retro gaming community. So, you know, I'm just giving people a heads up that uh, this is something that will be more frequent. Now, I'm not saying that this is something that I will be doing more frequently. I have my own thoughts about the review and embargoes and stuff, and I'm going to talk about that here shortly. But I just want people to you know be aware that the, this particular review was under embargo. And, you know, I was told very clearly, like everyone else that did the review, that, you know, the review needs to be released on the Monday morning at uh, eight a- at eight a.m. Pacific Standard Time, so that's why everyone's videos came out at the same time. There was no collusion or no- nothing else, you know, that was going on behind the scenes. Now, I'm I'm always honest with people, and I'm very transparent about the situation. So the Mega SG, um, you know, there's all this there's all this talk about how 
you know, we were all sent review units, you know, because we're big YouTubers or something. But the reality is uh, I approached Analog and asked them to send me a review unit. And I believe, I'm not saying every single other person that made a review did the same thing, but I probably would say that 85 to 90% of them would have approached Analog and asked for a review unit. It's it's not really fair on on us, you know, YouTubers to say that oh we we got them sent out because we're large YouTubers. The, re- the reality is if you have any type of platform, even a, even smaller channels, you know, I saw that were getting them sent out to them. Um, there was a, a chance that you would get one sent to you, sent to you, you know, f- for reviews. So, you know, it's a little unfair the the criticism that I heard about the Analog Mega SG and YouTubers getting sent them for review. But really, it's just something that is going to be more and more um, frequent as time goes by. Now, my thoughts about the embargo stuff. I don't know if I'm going to continue doing it. Now, look, I I, I always like reviewing analog products and I did purchase a Super NT last year and, you know, that was, um, that's, that's an awesome piece of hardware and I reviewed that on the channel. But look, I always am going to want to review interesting pieces of hardware and the Analog Mega SG certainly falls under that category would I get involved in another embargo-style review process again? I'm not sure. And the reason why I say that is because there was literally about 12 reviews that came out at 8 o'clock Pacific Standard Time when the Mega SG review was dropped, which is cool. You know, people really um, have a choice as to which reviewer they want to watch. And in some cases, people watched every single one of them, which is cool. But I kind of felt like that there were so many reviews and quite honestly, I didn't get anywhere near the amount of views that I I thought that I would. So I I put a lot of work and effort into my Mega SG review and I didn't really feel like the payoff was really worth it, you know. And again, I'm not suggesting that um, it was something that, you know, I felt like I needed to get like, you know, 500,000 views on, but because there were so many reviews of the product, the views were kind of spread across, you know, 12, 14 YouTubers. So even kind of the big players didn't really get many views on their videos. And I just kind of felt like it was an interesting experiment to do, but I'm not sure if I want to continue doing it. And the other thing is obviously with the embargo, you're locked into a certain date and time and that did not really align with my release schedule it was you know three hours or four hours later than my normal monday morning videos and that tends to throw people off a little and i'm the type of person that as you know i only release one video a week and it's always released on a monday morning so i also had some problems with you know the release schedule so would i do another embargo video I don't know the answer to that. Maybe if it's an interesting product, but I'm also I also learned a lot about the whole process, and I got to say I'm not a huge fan of the embargo process. I think I would just rather just buy the product and just review it myself on my own terms. That's not to say that my opinions, you know, of the product were different if I had purchased it, but I just don't know if I'm going to do another embargo style review which you know may be a little narrow-minded at this point considering the fact that there's other industries and other 
tech groups, like I said, like graphics cards and processors and PC tech, that that's all they ever do is everything is under embargo all the time. But, you know, for me, interesting experiment reviewing the Mega SG, great product. I did feel like the comments that I got were, I mean, most of the comments were always, you know, very positive and people liked the review and everything, but there was just that kind of subsection of people that weren't really sure what was going on. You know, there was, there was genuinely confused people out there that didn't understand why there was 10 reviews released at the same time. And, you know, the only conclusion they had made up was it was some type of collusion that we're all, you know, talking to each other behind the scenes and, and, saying that we're going to release it, release this at the same time. But review embargoes are very common in other areas of technology and in the industry. But obviously, as mentioned, you know, I guess the, the last the last thing I'm going to say about this topic is that, you know, the retro community still has to get educated on how that works in some areas. Now speaking of retro products, I want to talk about Polymega because I have been asked questions about Polymega. Am I going to get a Polymega unit? Am I going to get a review unit? All that kind of stuff. What do I think about the product? Is it real? Is it legit? Is it bullshit? Does it work? Um, The answer to that is I don't know, (laughs) honestly. Um, But I will say this. I will say that I was a fairly loud kind of detractor. I get the product and what it does. Um, you know, it's really at the end of the day, it's just an emulation device. And anyway, Polymega wants to spin it as anything else is just, you know, incorrect. What this is, is it's a x86 or x64 based PC that runs emulators. Now, to to be fair and to their credit, it seems like the architecture they're using, which is, again, just going to PC based architecture is sufficient enough to run all the emulators that they've advertised, for example, Sega Saturn, as full speed, I think that is a real statement. And they've kind of backed this up, especially with the last few weeks at GDC with these kind of behind-closed-doors clips and videos of kind of raw footage of Sega Saturn games being played on the system. And honestly, it looks pretty cool you know the the ui looks very clean the the system itself looks looks good i really liked the way that everything kind of ran and you know to their credit it seems like they have responded extremely well to all the detractors of this particular product and i've got to say a couple of weeks ago there was an almost catastrophic meltdown by whoever was running the polymega twitter because they were basically coming out and calling analog Gestapos and, and just using language that was really just not very nice, you know. And, and I don't mean that as in, um, you know, it was trolling or anything. It was just kind of inappropriate, you know, that they they kind of came out beating their chest saying things like, we're not going to take any more shit from analog and we've been stomped on the curb too many times before and, They've done nothing but bashes and everything. And it was very strange, very strange to me that that those types of tweets were coming out. Because now normally when you run a business Twitter account, it's just really about announcing stuff and it's about marketing. You know, you're not getting personal with anyone for any reason ever. And it was just very strange that that was the approach that they were taking. 
and I didn't really care for it and a lot of other people didn't either and I just felt like oh my god you know this is just another thing that Polymega is getting you know in in shit for because of what they're saying on Twitter and there were a couple of YouTubers that picked up on what was going on and made videos on it which was I don't know if it was really warranted to make a video on Polymega's you know meltdown on Twitter I mean I think everyone has a bad day and may say some things that you know they may regret later on but having said that Polymega hasn't deleted any of their tweets they're still there to take a look at which I think is interesting to see that that's what they're doing but in any case I I will be honest with you um, with the last couple of weeks at GDC they've really responded very very well to a lot of the questions and a lot of the detractors that people have asked myself included you know uh, finally they've they've shown raw gameplay footage of different things and the system looks really good but having said that i still have some concerns about some of the statements they're making i'll get to that shortly but i also have issues with their release schedule You know, they've opened up or they're about to open up, you know, additional round of funding in May. And then they claim that their product will be out, you know, at the end of summer. But to me, that doesn't feel like a realistic timeline. The product that they showed at GDC looked great for what it was, but I didn't see a cartridge port in the product itself, which was part of the kind of scans that they showed with the you know the 3D model scans that they showed of the the prototypes and stuff. Now that you know you could say well look maybe it was already in there they just need to come up with a new case design to uh, include that and that that's fine but you know you come to GDC and you're demoing Neo Geo CD games, Sega Saturn games and other things that's cool. Look this product should be completely finished by now and it was clear to me that it's not you know, and you can you can say, well, you know, it, they, they just brought a prototype. That's cool. But you, you come out and said that the product hardware is completed. So I just don't feel like they're being honest about how far along the product is at. But in any case, I mean, look, maybe maybe that's true. You know, maybe everything is complete and, you know, we'll, we'll see some more tests of cartridge based games at a later stage, which would be cool. Now, the second thing that really kind of bugs me about this is that Polymega came out and said that they have 99% Sega Saturn compatibility. Now, and they have something like 93 or 95% Sony PlayStation compatibility. Now, 99% compatibility with Sega Saturn. Now, I don't know how many games make up the entire list of Sega Saturn games. But 99%, I mean, what is that? Let's say it's a 1,000 games, right? That is basically saying that there is 10 games that are not compatible with the Polymega. Now, to me, that doesn't sound right at all because I know for a fact that there are quite a few Sega Saturn games that have severe compatibility issues. And no matter how they like to tell you about the high compatibility, it's not 99%, especially with an HLE BIOS. And then they came out and said, well, and you can also sideload the official Sega Saturn BIOS and it's, you know, 100% compatibility. 
But there's no way you could ever make a statement like that and promise people that it's 100% compatibility because I guarantee you I can put in 10 games into that system and all of them will not work. And all you really need to do is look up the Mednafen Sega Saturn compatibility list and you'll get an idea about what's compatible and what isn't. Now, I'm not saying that Mednafen Sega Saturn is not a good emulator. It's actually a, a very good emulator and it has a high percentage compatibility. But 99% compatibility is just a completely incorrect statement. And I hope, for their sake, that it's one that doesn't come back to haunt them. Even though it was you know, a throwaway statement they said on Twitter, those types of statements that you make really will come back to, to kind of haunt you. And I hope that Polymega you know, does get their shit together from a marketing perspective because you know, it seems like they have a decent product. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. You know, they, it, it does seem like they have a decent product. And again, I am starting to warm to them a little more, especially after the demos that they've shown off to people at GDC and some of the videos that they've shown off with some real footage of gameplay. But I just feel like the statements, the, the outlandish statements they continue to make may be a problem for them later on down the track. Am I going to get a Polymega? Yes, I probably will. Um, I'll, I'll probably just buy one or I may ask them for a review unit. I don't know. Um, I've had a couple of, you know, goes at them on Twitter and they've responded to me. I'm not sure if they like me too much, but either way, I will probably check out the Polymega. I think it's interesting. And, you know, honestly, I think the, the concept is, is very interesting to me that, You've got one system that plays all sorts of different you know, types of games, cartridge-based and CD-ROM games. That's pretty cool. And you know, I definitely see the appeal of it, but we'll see how, how it goes. I mean, I think the next few months will be interesting, whether they go dark again or whether they really start to ramp up and start you know, making good on the promises that they made. I still have questions about the compatibility of Sega Saturn and Sony PlayStation, especially with HLE BIOSes. I think the compatibility percentage is a lot less than what they're saying, and it's certainly not 100% with official BIOSes. It, you know, having an official BIOS just doesn't mean that everything is perfect all of a sudden, because that is not true. There's always going to be some glitches and some issues, but it does make things better. There's no doubt about that. But you know, to say that it's near 100% is just a completely false statement. I'm going to be at attendance at not one, not two, but three different expos this year, and I'm really excited. So this year, I decided to kind of put my name in the ring to attend a couple of expos and see if anyone would be interested in picking me up as a guest speaker at these events. I have been following the kind of the retro expo scene over the last few years, I've never actually been to one. I think the last one that I went to was MGC back in like 2012 or something, which I thought was okay. It wasn't a great event. It was a little unorganized, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, I do go every year to the Commodore Retro Expo in Las Vegas, and that is a 8 and 16-bit Commodore show, which is really awesome. It's set up by Jim Drew, who's an ex-Commodore employee and a longtime Commodore developer. He worked on things like Fusion, Implant, PCX, the uh, emulation that you've probably used on the Amiga if you have ever tried emulation on the Amiga. 
and he puts together a pretty good show. So I will be back this year at the Commodore Retro Expo, and that is on August 23rd to 25th in Las Vegas, Nevada. So I'm really stoked and excited to be going back to Commodore Retro Expo, or CRX as it's affectionately known. And yeah, I've confirmed that with Jim Drew. I'll be back this year. Had a great show last year and the year before. It's an awesome show. It's very small and intimate, but if you like Commodore 8 and 16-bit stuff, there's a lot to like about this. A lot of cool stuff. There's more speakers that will be there this year, I'm sure. It's still pretty much early on in the planning phase, so there's more speakers to come. But if you want more information on that event, check out www.crxevent.com and you'll find out more about the 2019 show that's going to be in August, as mentioned. Now, I'm going to be also attending two other shows as guest speakers. The first one is the Long Island Retro Gaming Expo, and that is at the Cradle of Aviation Garden City in New York, and that will be on August 10 and 11. So I've got a very busy August. I'm going to be coming back from Australia at the end of July and then jetting off to Long Island for the Retro Gaming Expo for the weekend of the 10th and the 11th and then I've got like a, a week or so off and then off to Vegas to the CRX 2019 so I will be at the Long Island Retro Expo this is my first expo that I'm going to and I'm really psyched about it I'm in the process of putting together my presentation for that particular expo and I'm not going to give away too much but it's going to be about modding and some of the history that I have been involved with so that should be pretty cool something that's probably a little different to the speakers and presentations that have been at shows like this before so yeah I'm going to bring something kind of unique and interesting to the table so if you're available come on down to the Long Island Retro Expo and the CRX Expo in Vegas and come and say hello I can't wait to meet with all you guys now the third show that I've just been confirmed for and it hasn't been announced yet guys and this is, you know, an exclusive. You heard it here first on this podcast is I will be at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo on October 18th to the 20th at the Oregon Convention Center in Portland, Oregon. I'm really psyched to have been asked to attend this as a guest speaker. I will be there with bells on. I can't wait. I will be presenting there as well. I'm not sure if I'm going to do the same presentation as what I do at Long Island or something a little different, but I kind of figure that, you know, the people from Long Island will probably not be at the Portland event. So I may just do the same uh, presentation there as well, but I'm really psyched about it. I've never been to Portland before, never been to Oregon before, so... I'm really psyched to be a part of PRGE and the Long Island Retro Expo, and I'm really looking forward to my presentation as well as meeting with each and every one of you guys. I can't wait to hang out with everyone as well as the vendors on the trading floor. I want to buy some stuff for my collection too, so I don't really get to do that much very often, and I'll probably be looking out for Amiga stuff. So yeah. If you are available for either of those two events, please come on down and come and say hello when you see me at the show. I was live streaming for the first time on Tuesday night a few days ago, and it was an awesome live stream. I really, really love doing live streams. I had so much fun with you guys. Like the last time I did a live stream was back in the new year, and I mentioned that I wanted to live stream more. And of course, you know, me being me getting busy with work and YouTube stuff, just the live streaming stuff 
kind of fell by the wayside. And I do apologize. You know, I, I did make some kind of commitment to live stream more, but I ended up live streaming on Tuesday night. I came home from work and I just had a pretty shitty day at work. Uh, it was just, you know, it was one of those days at work where it was a lot of stress, you know, and I thought I'm going to eat dinner and just jump on a live stream and hang out for a while. And it was awesome because I gave about 30 minutes of notice on the, um, you know, the reminder that I set there on, on the uh, YouTube page. And I didn't really expect anyone to turn up because number one, it's a weeknight. It was like Tuesday night at 7.30 p.m. Haven't announced that I'm going to live stream. Normally, most people will live, you know, will announce it like throughout the day or even the day before that they've got a live stream, you know, that night. So I didn't really anticipate that that many people would show up. I know that the regulars would turn up, you know, my, you know, the, the, the people that have watched me since the start and that know me. But I ended up having over 300 people on the live stream, and it was so much fun. It was awesome. I had such a fun time. It was exactly what I needed. And I really want to say thank you to everyone that was there at the live stream. I sat there and just answered question after question after question. I didn't have any type of game prepared, or I didn't want to show some gameplay of anything. I just wanted to hang out, and I had so much fun. It was awesome. Now, I went back and kind of watched. I didn't watch the whole thing because it's like, I think it was two and a half hours worth, but I I noticed I got a lot of questions that I didn't answer, and I apologize. You know, it's it's difficult to to answer every single question because you tend to pick out things that you see in the chat, and some things kind of just get lost in the mix. So I do wish I could go back and answer more questions, but you know, I I really had a good time, and I hope you guys did too. And I think it was a lot of fun, and I'm going to continue doing live streaming more as well more often than i normally have been at least you know that's definitely my commitment to you guys uh, but i had a lot of fun but what i wanted to talk about was i had one question now the question that i got asked was what would you think about becoming a youtuber in 2019 would you do it now it's a good question because you know the short answer that you know most youtubers would say is no because it's all it's all kind of blood, sweat and tears and, and really not much gain or something. But so my take on this is if you want to be a YouTuber in 2019, if you want to start your own channel, then go for it. Absolutely go for it. There's nothing stopping you from doing it. And you get bonus points for coming to the table with something interesting and unique because you will find an audience that will, will follow you and watch your channel and you will get some level of success. Now, I want to also be very clear and say that success can mean different things to different people. But if you start a YouTube channel and you have some goals in mind to grow your channel and grow your brand, then you should absolutely do that. I tell anyone that wants to do it that there is no reason why you can't. Saying that there's too many YouTubers out there or it's 2019, it's not worth creating a YouTube channel because you're not going to make any money is a very narrow-minded statement to make. It just doesn't make sense because people do YouTube for different reasons. And I started out on YouTube many, many years ago in 2007 as a hobby. You know, it was even before I believe monetization was around. 
And it's always been a hobby of mine, even to this day, even even now when, you know, I'm more successful, it's still a hobby. This is not my full-time job. I do this on the side and, you know, I get a little bit of money on the side, which is nice, but this is not something that I do seriously as a business or, or anything like that. Now, I do have a brand and I like to promote my brand and all that stuff, but honestly, you know, for me, if YouTube was... Um, terminated tomorrow then i'd be i'd be disappointed i'd be i'd be sad i'd be unhappy but my life would go on you know it, it wouldn't affect me from a monetization aspect very much at all and you know for me that's really what makes youtube so good is because it's always been a hobby of mine it's always been my escape from from you know my work and I can always really bring 100% to the table. I will say that if you just want to be a Let's Player or a Vlogger, then you're going to be, you know, in a sea of other Let's Players and, and, and Vloggers, and you're probably not going to get noticed. You know, my, my biggest piece of advice is, if you really want to start YouTube in 2019, and you want to make some semblance of a platform for yourself, then you have to really come to the table with something interesting and unique. And I think that's where most YouTubers that I know have grown their channel and grown their brands over the years is because they have something unique and interesting to bring to the table. And also, be entertaining. Entertaining is probably the single most important aspect or attribute you can have as a YouTuber. And it's something that you'll learn over time. Now, you know, I have never really thought of myself as someone who's entertaining. But when your viewers are telling you otherwise, that means that you're doing something right. Now, making a YouTube channel in 2019 is something that I think anyone should be able to do. There's no reason why you can't. And you should start today. If it's something that you really are interested in doing, it doesn't matter how old you are, or it doesn't matter what type of video content you want to do just go ahead and do it you know but just be also be realistic that any level of success is going to take some time and you know for me i would say start with you know something that's achievable so the first kind of goal that i set myself was 100 subscribers now that sounds like something that you know you could achieve in a couple of weeks but my first 100 subscribers took a long time but when I got there, I was like, wow, that's pretty awesome. I can fill up a cinema room full of my subscribers. That's pretty cool, right? And then it just kind of goes from there, you know, think a little bigger and a little bigger and the rewards will come, but you have to work. And that's that's the part where a lot of people just kind of fall off, that they feel like, you know, they should be further along or their success isn't where it should be. Look, I think you know, YouTube to me is a formula. And if you kind of just go along with that formula and do everything that YouTube algorithm is wanting you to do, then you'll succeed on the platform. And again, I want to say that success means different things to different people. I also want to say, don't fall into the trap of like paying someone to get a session on how to do better as a YouTuber. I see a lot of these type of paid you know people that that want money that 
so-called experts on how to grow your brand and and how to do better marketing and stuff. And you don't really need those people. I'm not saying they don't provide something interesting. They certainly do. And But the thing is, you know, what they'll tell you is stuff that I'll tell you for free. You know, the, the, the information they tell you should not be monetized. Like um, the information they'll tell you is how to grow your brand and how to become more successful. And anyone that has grown a YouTube channel knows what that means. So these people that um, will will say, hey, you know, read my, my, my guide to growing your YouTube brand, you know, from zero to 100,000 subs in a year, all you need to do is pay $49.99 and I'll send you a copy of my MP3, which has all the information you need. Just ignore that stuff. And there's quite a lot of them out there. I see them on my Twitter feed. I see them on my Facebook feed. Look, if you want YouTube advice, just send me an email. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what you need to do to become successful on this platform. And I'll tell you what to do and what not to do. And I think most people that you know are in my kind of situation would probably tell you the same thing, that you don't really need to spend money to, to get the answers that you're looking for. But um, I know I'm, I'm kind of going off on a bit of a tangent, but, um, you know, yes, absolutely. Start a YouTube channel, enjoy it, have fun, send it out to your friends, send the links out to your friends and family and get their feedback, get their honest feedback. I think that really does go a long way to, you know, making you a better, better YouTuber over time. But Again, it's definitely something that you will get better with as as you release more content. So be patient, enjoy it, have fun, and just enjoy the ride is the best thing I can say. And absolutely make one in 2019. No one should be told that they cannot make a YouTube channel in 2019 for any reason. Go ahead and do it, have fun, and enjoy the ride. Well, that will do it for this episode of the Modern Vintage Podcast, episode three. I am your host, Modern Vintage Gamer. Now, before I go, if you want to catch me on social media, you can find me on Twitter at Modern Vintage G, Facebook, Modern Vintage Gamer, Instagram, Modern Vintage Gamer, as well as YouTube, of course, at Modern Vintage Gamer. This was episode three of the Real MVP Podcast. If you like this show, leave a review and let me know what you thought about it. And I will catch you guys in the next podcast. Bye for now.